Have you ever wondered, are you really making the best decision out of all your options? Or are we only living under the illusion that we made the right choice? Are us humans all disconnected individuals, or are we all more or less interlinked in some way? Can we really explain an experience to someone who has never experienced it before? These are the questions that shape how we perceive the world. Joshua. Hi, I'm Talia. And welcome to our podcast, The Uncommon Senses, where we reflect on the nature of knowledge and on how we know what we claim to know. So, hi everyone, once again, welcome. For those who are new to our podcast, we are two university students who have endured two years of IBTOK education, and we're here to share more of our experience as well as our thoughts. So far in the episode, we have gone through what senses are, essentially the tools we use to experience the world around us. We've talked about how our senses could fool us sometimes, causing what we may call illusions. But sometimes we could be fooled even though our senses are working perfectly, which brings us to our topic today, how the world around us could obscure the truth from us. Recently, in the business communications class that I took in university, we explored a technique known as framing. So, um, to in order to bring this um, technique to life, let's do a really small experience really quickly. So, let's say you wanted to buy a, a product like a camera, and there are two available. One is $5,000 and has 50% off, and another one has $3,000 and you get $500 off. So, you know, Talia, I'm interested. Which one would you buy given these like options? I personally would definitely pick the $5,000 and 50% off one um, because it just, it seems like you have, you, you know, you have saved more because you've saved 50%. Like this uh, product is, was worth $5,000 and now you're getting half the price and that seems like a really good deal. But then um, looking at the $3,000 and you only get $500 off, it's only like a much smaller percentage, much less than like 50%. So then you feel like it's better, even though, I mean, mathematically, I know the cost of these two cameras are like exactly the same. But yeah, just $5,000 <laughs> and 50% off seems like a better deal. Yeah, it's very interesting because you, you went straight with like the mathematical point of view because I understand that that's like your major in university and <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean you're completely right. I mean most people would choose the um, one with the 50% off and as you know carrying on from what we've discussed from last episode, we've talked about how you know human beings, we have this natural ability to compare different things in order to figure out the you know best option for us and we've talked about how this uh, this could be an evolutionary um, instinct to ensure our own survival in the wild to you know ensure that we have the best chances to survive and yeah and you know you and along with a lot of other people you're right a lot of people choose um the option with 50 percent off just because it sounds like you get a better deal and the same goes to why sometimes items are priced um differently uh, you know, um, they they have um, prices where they have like um, something point ninety nine to make them seem cheaper. Mm -hmm. And the main idea is that how we present truths or data affects the way we feel about them. And this is known as forced perspective in TOK. And it is when things are 
and conditioned so you see things in a specific way, intentionally or unintentionally or not. So like um, you know, another example you see in daily life and. And an example that we usually talk about is the idea of a truncated graph. So, it's essentially a graph which um, they they um, um they amplify the differences between each uh, variant to make the graph seems like there's a, a bigger difference between each. But when mm -hmm. you're putting all the data together, aligning them together, and you and you compare them, um, essentially the graph shows the same level of data. So there isn't really as uh, as big of a difference than people would have thought just by observing a graph. So yeah, um, you see these examples everywhere and they it is used in different situations like advertisement or education. There are a lot of different, um, yeah, a lot of different, yeah. um, you know, methods that the people use to try to make you think a certain way. And certainly, as we've discussed before, um, there's the idea of um, how um, social constructs could affect the way we see things. And, you know, I think these definitely plays into a, a sort of like technique or strategies to get you to have a, um, to see things in a certain way that um, they, uh, certain people intended it to be. And an example could be seen from an experiment known as the crash um, crash car experiment done by Dr. Loftus and Palmer in 1974. Essentially, what they did is that they took some participants and showed them some films of car crashes. And later, when they're asked how the participants would rate the severity of the car crash, they found out that participants tend to give a higher rating um, when the when wordings such as smashed or collided are used, but they tend to give a lower rating when words such as contracted or hit were used. So, um, as you can see, these words are, are um, they differ in the way of severity. So when we use um, words such as um, smashed or collided, people tend to conjure up an image of a you know, higher severity. It seems like something disastrous has happened. But when we use wording such as contracted or hit, it, it tends to be, you know, of a lower severity. And it sounds like um, the um, car merely grazed upon each other. And this experiment shows that how valuable um, our memories are. But more importantly, it shows how wordings and diction could subconsciously influence our thinking. So here we could use the term modality to describe this phenomenon, which means the particular mode or language that something exists in or is expressed in. So, um, you know, as, as you can see so far, we've explored how the environment or external stimuli could affect our senses. However, in other times, how we think internally could also have a huge impact on the way we explore the world. An experiment could be seen from a psychological experiment known as the Sally Ann test, which um, is also known as the false belief test. In this experiment, children are shown two fictional characters, Sally and Ann. Sally has a basket while Ann has a box. Sally places a ball in, in the basket and Ann notices this. While Sally is gone, Ann moves the ball back to the box. Is the, and the question that's asked within this experiment is that um, where would Sally um, t look for the ball after she returns? So tell yeah, I, I know this experiment is um, you know designed for little children, but how would you answer this question? Um, I I mean, cause Sally placed the ball in her in her own basket, right? And then Anne moved that ball from Sally's basket back to her own box. So, because Sally doesn't know that Anne has moved a box, so Sally is possibly going to look into her very own 
basket first and see because she doesn't know that Anne moved the ball back to her own box. If that makes sense. Yeah, 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 definitely.、Um, yeah, and I also remember like we definitely talked about this in class, and I think something kind of interesting is like a, this kind of just illustrates the sense of like your own self and you know like your perception on yourself and everything. You know, I think the the main point about this experiment is to able to identify with um, you know, to understand the idea that people may not understand or think the same way as you do, and I think that this also plays with the idea of you know empathy and sympathy and this you know natural tendency for human beings to kind of um, to think from a perspective of another from another person and. Of course, like as normal people, we have this、um, ability to think from others' point of view, and it's very important in a lot of, you know, especially humanitarian work or、um, a lot of surface sector works that people do. And you know, it's、um, another thing is that this sort of ability is actually kind of a mystery to.、Um, To scientists or to sociologists, because if you think about it,、um, <clears throat> human beings、um, in the wild, where to be honest, we're just looking for our own interest. We're looking for our own,、um, we're ensuring our own survival. So this idea of you know empathy, selflessness, and also like self-sacrifice is actually quite、um, a mystery to、um, to researchers because. Um, you know they don't really give、um, individuals the best chance of survival, so it's quite a、um, unknown that、uh, they, they don't they're not quite sure how, how these really plays into our own、uh, ability to survive and why these even、um, why these even exist in the first place.、Mm-hmm. And so, like back to the experiments. So what experiments found is that children before the age of four thinks that Sally would look for the ball in the box. This is due to the false assumption that Sally could see what they saw. And they do not understand what other people may see or exper- experience、um, different things than they do. In other words, they think that everyone sees the world the same way as they do, which of course isn't true, as we are all, you know, individuals with our own、um, experience and with our own、um, way of seeing things. And we'll explore this more on later when we talk about、um, phenomenalist、um, reality and the different forms of reality that people may、um, use to see the world. And experiment、um, also found out that after the age of four, children could answer that Sally would look for the ball in the basket, as they could understand that Sally did not see Anne place the ball in the box in the first place. And this ability to understand what other people may think and how those thoughts may be different from ours is known as the theory of mind. So、um, on the surface, this seems like a good thing. So understanding what others are thinking could aid us in giving appropriate responses. Like、um, we're able to collect more, you know,、uh, context when we're doing conversations and when we're trying to.、Um, You know,、uh, interact with other people. So,、uh, however, a problem emerges when our assumptions are wrong. So sometimes we can misjudge what other people are thinking. So this ability is not, you know, foolproof. So has this ever happened to you, Talia? Where you think that someone is happy or sad, but when they're actually not? No.、Oh, okay, this is an interesting question. Um, because I think the your mention on emotions of happy or sadness is definitely related to emotions as a Um, way of knowing because a lot of the times, like these emotions, can be very universal. Like it's kind of like written on their faces. But definitely, there are times that happen where, like after a certain event, that 
has happened to a certain person, I would assume that they will feel happy or they would feel sad. But turns out they might think otherwise because of their personal experiences. So when I'm kind of giving my response, or like I'm trying to, you know, interact with them, you know, their reactions to what I try to tell them can be a little bit different from what I intended. So yeah, I think this event definitely happened. To, to to me before and I think to a lot of people as well. Yeah, actually, I I think I sh- share a similar experience in that um, I remember when I was young, so um, you know, you know, um, my 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 uh, my family always have this face, so you know, this face where you give when you're expressionless, you don't have any emotions. But to a young self, um, to me, that's like a sign of angry or. Like if you're not happy, mm-hmm. you must be sad. Or if you're not, if you don't show um, emotions of joy, you must be having some other sort of emotion. So I didn't understand that people have like sometimes you know just have like really no emotions. All they feel normal, and you know yeah. I always bug my parents with the question about like, are you sad? <laughs> are you angry? What did I do? Something like that. Because you know to to me it's just so um I guess also like a kind of um. Influenced by like the television media, so when we look at sitcoms, when we look at like television or when we look at movies, we see that actors always have a sort of, always have emotions. You know, they are very expressive in the way they act, and I guess that's imprinted in me the idea that you know people must always have like they must always show a certain emotion to. Um, to represent what they're feeling at the time, <laughs> but yeah, and I do not understand that. Um, <clears throat> sometimes people, as I said, people just feel normal and they have like a you know um, no no emotions whatsoever. <laughs> and yeah, I, I I guess this also feeds into the idea of um the the resting you know the resting B word face <laughs> yeah B face <laughs> where right. um, some people just have a naturally you know. Um, angry looking face when in fact they don't really feel any emotions at all and I, yeah. I guess um, some, sometimes it's also very hard to, it also brings in the idea of how sometimes it's very hard to judge someone's emotions because um, our faces are, are built differently and this will definitely will affect our interpretation of someone else's emotions and how they're feeling because um, as we've talked about just now, people are some people are just naturally angry looking when some people yeah. are, um, you know, they have more calm and let's say more approachable faces. Yeah, I can totally kind of relate to that or like especially um, your point on like the media and like uh, or TV movies as well as like initially as a child, we just think that parents are like, you know, either angry or sad. So it's kind of like very extreme emotions. Like we just assume that if they, they are having this resting bee face, then they are either angry or, you know, sad. Like we just, or other times when they have a smile on their face, they're happy and, you know, joyful. And actually this relates to, I think, the movie Inside Out. Like I'm kind of currently doing this as my university project. So you, you see how like Riley, when she was um, much younger, she's basically, you know, only, she, she basically just has this whole joy, you know, personality, emotion, kind of being the main person, leader and the control for, you know, 
all of her other small emotions and kind of overlooking the importance of like sadness, of anger, fear, and disgust. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're not the only emotions that a person has, but yeah, you see how when she was younger, this joy figure kind of dominates her and kind of like when we were younger. And I think the reason why we think you're either happy or sad with, with relation to like how TVs portray things or how young children cartoons kind of um, you know portray everything as on the extreme is either good or is bad like we, we have that idea already imprinted in our minds at a very young age um, so I, I think to talk about this I think it's really nice to see like movies for children nowadays are becoming definitely becoming better at doing that, that, you know, the world isn't just good or bad. Like from inside out, you can see that this is, there's no main like antagonist or like the evil character, but it's more of like her internal, Riley's internal emotions, trying to see how they can work well as a team, that this issue is internal and you have to overcome your internal um, problems in order to become a better person. And I think nowadays, like the, Pixar's, I think, Turning Red, I think that's the new movie, yeah. was also, yeah, like, I haven't watched it, I really want to, because it looks so cute, but yeah, I, I think it's also really about, you know, growing up and really to overcome yourself and your your internal problems. I think that is a great giant leap of um, cartoons designed for younger audiences. You know, we can see how it has evolved from, you know, like 20 years ago to now yes definitely i think like you know um, cartoons are definitely not dumbing down for their audiences anymore and they mm-hmm. i think on one part they, they realize that you know not only children likes to watch um these cartoons i think people of all different age levels like to enjoy mm-hmm. these uh, medias but also you know as you've said um society has moved on from the face that an idea that thinking, oh, children doesn't know anything. Children, you know, we should be protecting these children from the real world, while actually we should be actually educating them and to really mm-hmm. preparing them to become adults in the real world. As after all, they will one day grow up and they will form the, you know, the the pillars of our society. So we do have to yeah. you know, do a lot of educational work in that regards. Um, and, you know, on the side, I'm just interested because you know, so far we've talked about you know misjudging people's. This, uh, people's um, emotions you know it, it, it's really the damage is really limited so we've talked about how oh it could we could um you know bug someone or annoy someone if we you know misjudge someone's emotions but do you think that it, um doing this have more like um a more severe or real life um you know adversities that it could bring out for example like um you know, so, you know, when political commenters they usually will comment about how oh, certain world leaders have certain um, body language or certain um, facial emotions that could imply something. But, you know, as we've seen, it's not foolproof. It's not invaluable. So use, these analysis could be wrong. And, you know, it could lead up to, you know, larger um, implications. It could lead up to, you know, larger changes happening. So, yeah, um, do you think um, these, um, you know, not these misjudges of someone else's emotions could, in a way, also bring up um, larger problems in our world today. Definitely, especially, you know, with political leaders, like people that has so much power and authority in making decisions. And yeah, I think if we just, I mean, politics, I mean, in terms of human behavior, I think 
every single human, we're so unique and we're so different. But then at the same time, like human behavior is also so predictable. Like there's definitely psychological reasonings be behind like these people analyzing, you know, why this leader judges in a particular way. And I think like as we grow up and we possibly have um, met more people and have, have more experiences, then I feel like we definitely will pick up better on these, you know, micro expressions that people make or like these emotions. And I think the important part for like all, I guess, in political world is to really keep an open mind, you know. It's being increasingly explicit because as you can see, like we have um, more would you say more extreme um, world leaders mm. in their you know yes. body language and emotions such as you know we have Donald Trump before and <laughs> yeah and you, you definitely see how um you know the, the political stage is turning more to me at least more reality show like it's more about the showmanship mm. and more about how you package yourself more than actually creating change which is kind of sad but yeah I guess that's the reality we live in now. Mm -hmm. And also, let's just say a quick note. Um, what what um, what's um you know mis on the topic of misjudging someone's emotions also reminds me of um I don't know if you heard this yet, but in Oscar yesterday, um the actor um Will Smith, oh. uh, slapped the host um Chris Rock based on a joke on his wife known as J I Jane, and. Mm -hmm. You know, definitely, perhaps there is like a misjudgment of the, um, you know, the perhaps the actor's attitude or the actor's, um, how, how the actor would take the joke. And definitely, you know, it's also for pretty misleading at first because you can, you know, some cameras have reported seeing that um, the actor is seen laughing at, you know, the joke made by the host. Yeah. But then a second later, little do we know who actually, you know, engage in the physical altercation. So, you know, misjudging someone's emotions and misjudging the environment and how it, how well they tolerate tolerate certain responses could also lead to violence and, you know, um, active conflicts. And, yeah, I think, you know, in, in, in a nutshell, uh, but this... Uh, although this, uh, as we've learned, this is a very useful skill that has been given to us, and uh, as you've mentioned, it gets better with experience and with um, practice as we go older. Um, I, I it's, it's definitely worth noting that these skills aren't invaluable, and it could, um, it could lead to disastrous outcomes sometimes if used misused or used wrongly. So, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, after discussing all that, I guess the main takeaway is that. We assume others people may think or feel, um, may, may um, uh, what others may think or feel may affect how we perceive their actions. For example, if we think someone is angry, we may see them running towards us as a sign of threat, while they may actually be only excited to see us. So, therefore, um, you know how we it, it really this really comes to show how we perceive the world around us or how we perceive someone could actually affect our you know, um affects our way of seeing the world in the way of not directly interacting with our senses but more so about how um you know this world is perceived and f formulated or visualized in our brain and you know we'll definitely talk more about this topic when we touch on the again the topic of phenomenalism in the podcast of where we discuss um, different types of reality and how we interpret the world so moving on back in 2018 um 
I attended a competition called World Scholars Cup, and the theme was an entangled world. So this is a competition about how, um, you know, there's, I, yeah, I think Talia can also tell you as she also mm-hmm. attended it. It's a competition about, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, answering questions, debating, and also writing in groups. So the, it's, it's a rather academic competition, and usually we'll have a theme where we discuss world issues. And the theme that year is an entangled world, where um, our focus is on how the people and the fence around the world is connected, you know, especially in a post-globalized setting. And I remember reading this poem called No Man is an Island by the English poet John Zone, which likened individuals to a piece of the European continent, entwined and interlinked to each other. However, um, recently I also came across a quote from the um, English journalist um, Rudyard Kipling's 1918, uh, 1890 novel The Light That Fell, which says, we're all islands shouting lies to each other across seas of misunderstanding, which um, delivers a very different sentiment compared to Don. So as you can see, both poems, they also liken individuals to sort of like islands. And one talked about how we're, you know, interconnected islands in the, the formerly the entire continent and how we're all, you know, an action from one could affect an action from another. While, you know, the second poem talks about how we're, um, it, it essentially isolates islands that have no way of connecting to, connecting to each other and it's very hard for us to communicate or reach out. So Talia, which one do you think is more, that you're more prone to believe, the notion that all men are united under humanity, that we're all, you know, um, really social animals, we all interact or affect each other in a way, or are we just disconnected individuals under the illusions of establishing any meaningful communication? And that the truth is that we're ultimately isolated with each other, unable to really, you know, um, to, unable to really have an actual or significant effect on each other. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Because for me, I think it's we are both. Because like at the very end, we're social animals, so we. We, we are kind of connected, like we live in communities. We think we are having like, we definitely get more benefits from being together than living alone. And yeah, I think that's primarily how like our world has functioned since like the beginning of civilization, basically. Um, however, I think like nowadays we are definitely becoming a little bit more disconnected, I would say. Um, and I think... I think, like, you know, increasing internet, like social media, it's definitely somewhat, it's, it definitely has a significance to this, you know, whole breakdown of, like, us connections. Because even though internets are originally, you know, created to connect people from other places together, but I think now the internet is becoming very powerful and all of these, like, so-called algorithms are kind of really breaking us apart even though they're supposed to give you the best content but they also makes us more um, deeply extreme with our ideas and like our beliefs and so I, I will say that um, we should be more connected like I think we definitely should try to understand each other and you know be entangled once again however um, I also do agree that we are also individuals, like we, even though we live in a community, but then we also have our individuality. We also have, uh, we need a sense of self, like that's 
pretty much also much needed. Um, so I just feel like for sure we are united because there's actually so many things we share in common than differences. Um, however, I also think that having a sense of individual, knowing yourself, knowing your value is also important. So, yeah. Yes, um, definitely. I really agree with you on that point. And recently I wrote a paper on globalization. And I guess, um, you know, what we're describing here is, I, I guess, um, what at least what I called the backlash of connectiveness. So the idea that... Um, too much connection could actually bring forth conflicts and therefore we tend to kind of retreat back or try to resist this change. We've seen in, in, a, in you know, global context in the sense that, you know, some countries are, you know, turning to more self-isolationist um, policies in order to defend their self-interest and kind of break away from the negative effects brought forth by globalization. And, you know, on a smaller scale, um, you've also seen, um, you know, people of different um, culture withdrawing from each other. And uh, there's this term called um, cultural minimization. And this is the sort of idea that people would, um, people would put, um, they value the similarity that of us as humanity more than the cultural dif differences that separates us. And, you know, in some way that's good. Some people argue that because we are essentially dissolving cultural disparities, we're cut we're, you know, we're dissolving cultural barriers as we're, we, we seek the similarities that us as humanity brings forth is more important. But some people will argue that that's also a bad thing because, you know, um, um, we're essentially negating the uh, cultural diversity. We're negating the different cultural differences that, you know, us as uh, us coming from different backgrounds exist. So, um, you know, it's really uh, this idea is really up for debate. And also, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's very interesting that you bring out the idea of social media, um, you know, tech, internet and social media, because I think, um, in a way, social media has also made us more isolated. I know it's kind of a cliche to say this, but, you know, um, it's true when you're scrolling through social media, of course, people will put forth their best versions of themselves. They will show their yeah. best life. They won't say, of, of course, they won't, you know, want to post anything that makes themselves look bad. But, you know, what this creates is a sort of like illusion that when you scroll through social media, you think that everyone's life is perfect when they're actually not. And this will actually have a huge impact on, you know, self-esteem and how you feel the world. You kind of feel bad about yourself because you're like, what can my life be like them? And definitely, mm -hmm. I think this kind of leads to a kind of withdrawal from, you know, social interaction and withdrawal from, you know, just facing people as a whole because you kind of feel bad about yourself and you don't really think that you're, you know, worthy of discussing, communicating with other people. So, yes, I, I think um, definitely, I think, um, so would you say you're leaning more towards, um, you know, us as humanity is more, you know, disconnected in a way? Because uh, I, I guess, like, from what you've said, at least from what I've heard, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a good ideal that people are connected. But would you say that, you know, ultimately we're disconnected individuals from each other? Mm, right, because, you know, when you're talking about globalization, I suddenly think of that, you know, that phrase, 分久必合,合久必合。Um, <laughs> yeah, like, basically what that means is, like, when we are, like, separated, it's kind of like a political phrase and like you know in in chinese and it's like uh, when we are when when nations are more separated for a long time eventually they'll come together and when they have come together for a long time eventually they will 
you know, dissolve and like separate their ways once again. So I think it's kind of like an interesting cycle because when you're together, you think about your self-interest, but when you're, you know, isolated, you think about what you can do, the possibilities you can do if you just come together. Um, but regarding your question, I do think that now in society, we definitely have become increasingly disconnected, even though for me, I hope that someday we can be more connected. Yeah, yeah. So you know, definitely, I think it's definitely like a goal that I think humanity should reach about how to be more united and to value our similarities more than um, the mm. differences, the separates. Although now I say this, I find myself sounding quite communist, but you know, anyway, <laughs> that's moving on. Well, um, you know, whatever you may think, now we're going to explore one of the most you know, convincing arguments for proving that individuals are ultimately isolated, which is a concept known as qualia. So in layman's term, qualia refers to the phenomenon that we cannot accurately and fully communicate our sense experience since all our experiences are inherently subjective. You know, so for example, Talia, try, let's try a little experiment, shall we? So try to okay. experiment describe the experience of a headache to me without using the words <laughs> headache or pain. So assuming that I'm a person who has never suffered a headache or pain before. Basically, your head is just seems like something is squeezing you. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess I can't use pain. So I, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, something is squeezing you. But then if you don't experience pain, you don't know what the squeezing you yes. feel like. And like... I think the same goes for, you know, a lot of you know different things. For example, like, oh, try to describe a color to me or try to mm. um, describe these kind of exper different experiences. So we have like visual experiences, we have tactile experiences like pain. So I think, as you can see, the, the general idea is that it's, it's very difficult for Talia to communicate what a headache is like to me. And it has been found that, you know, verbal and written language do not have the capacity or capabilities to express individual experiences, which must be experienced by oneself. And, you know, I will, I will discuss more about this later when we cover the topic of language and its limitations in expressing trauma and how our language failed us in some way that... Uh, it's, it may not be a, a, a perfect way of communication since it does omit some um, messages that we would like to communicate. And the reason for this is that um, because the senses of one person and another person are ultimately disconnected to each other. So, you know, we're bringing back to the idea that um, human beings are, um, one can argue that human beings are um, isolated islands and, you know, unable to establish any meaningful communication in the sense that we're not able to express qualia, we're unable to express in the physical experience that we experience by ourselves. And there is even a Chinese idiom describing this phenomenon called manyan So it's known as the blind man and it's known as like the, um, you know, analogy of the blind man and the elephant. So the gist is that, is that it is a parable that a group of blind men are touching different parts of an elephant and they all have different impressions of what an elephant is like. So the idea is that because they're all touching different parts of the elephant, they all have um, different ideas of what an actual elephant looks like. So, you know, of course this will um, bring forth different um, you know, it, it brings out the disparity between individual human beings and how, because of our, you know, disconnected senses, we're unable to really, um, you know, effectively communicate in the way. And, you know, also linking back to our ideas before, because um, we, 
um, because as we said, uh, there's there could be a lot of things that prevent us from actually interpreting the truth or the environment around us. So we've covered illusions. We've covered um, how a different you know how different um, interpretation of the information could also lead to different outcomes. So you know th this idea is that you know we as human beings are inherently disconnected, and we're it's very hard for us to really. Um, communicate with each other because um, of these different for, uh, varying and different varieties in our ability to interpret and to sense the our surroundings and the world around us. So the, there's um, and based on this fact, there's actually a kind of phenomenon that people kind of fear this this connectivity. So um, this you can you can even see this reflected in Western culture, where there is a very famous creepy pasta called the Gateway of the Mind that showcases the horrors of having all your senses cut off from the outside world. So I won't go through too much in it, but essentially it's a horror story about how um, it's about the imagination uh, about a fictional world where a person has all its senses cut off from the outside world and how, you know, this, there's a incredible sense of loneliness, how there's an incredible sense of, you know, um, of um, boredom could actually drive one towards insanity. Um, so if you guys are interested, I'll actually link it down below. Although, fair warning, it is actually quite upsetting and maybe perhaps not too suitable for our younger audience. So I would say read at your own risk. So, yeah, so... Um, this is our, this is basically our end of our podcast today. So today we've talked about you know first of all senses and perception, how senses could affect the uh, affect how we see the world, and also how um our interpreter of the world around us could affect how information could be interpreted. We also introduced you to the idea of qualia of how um there's a very convincing argument that when when thinking about whether people are disconnected or not, it's just an argument of how we are we are disconnected because we're unable to use verbal written language. We, we're unable to use certain tools to communicate individual experiences. So thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. And in our next episode, we're going to talk more about how our senses affect the way we obtain knowledge and construct the reality around us. So please keep an eye out for new episodes and we'll see you next time on The Uncommon Senses.